the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, we thank you and we praise you that you came down, that you saw us, and that you blessed us. We thank you for these promises that in a world darkened by sin, broken by rebellion, you have come to bless and to redeem. May we know the gift of our redemption and the power of your blessing this morning as we turn to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as a father of four children, I have watched a lot of superhero movies over the years. Mostly, I I enjoy them, mostly. I, I do occasionally get bored, as I did with the most recent Black Panther movie, which was aptly called Wakanda Forever. Over the last few decades, there have been 31 films released in the Marvel Universe alone. And that is along with dozens of other films in this same genre. And I've often wondered, what is it about the world that we live in that has us aching for superheroes? Although there are plenty of reasons for their popularity. One in particular has been on my mind this past week, and that is our longing for justice our longing for justice. Going all the way back to the invention of the modern superhero, the primary mission of these men and women has been to establish and protect justice. They're the ones that we call on when no one else can help. They're the ones we trust to bring the bad guys down. They're the ones who look out for the weak and for the defenseless. We long for justice. But it's hard to know where to turn in order to find it. Normal human beings, they're just so fallible. Institutions we once trusted are no longer dependable. So we dream up superheroes to do the work for us. This longing for justice, it's an essential part of our humanity. We serve a just God who created us to be just people. So when we see justice thwarted, or challenged, or completely redefined and turned upside down, our temperature rises, and we cry out for something to be done. Superheroes, of course, aren't the answer. They are simply evidence of the need, 
and a powerful expression of the fact that when it comes to injustice, we just don't know what to do or where to turn. So where do we turn? Well, that's the topic of our Psalm of Lament this morning. More than a third of the prayers and poems in the book of Psalms can be classed as Psalms of Lament. It's more than 50 of these psalms. And during this season of Lent, we've been worshiping with these psalms, seeking to learn new ways of praying and a renewed vision of the goodness of God in the midst of a dark and difficult world. Psalm 10, it draws us into a kind of lament that we haven't seen yet. It's not the lament of an individual struggling with grief or anxiety or guilt. This is a corporate lament for a broken society. It's the lament of a king is speaking on behalf of his people as he wrestles with the appalling presence of evil in the world. So if you're not there already, I hope you'll turn with me to Psalm 10. You can find it on page 451 in those red Bibles. It begins with a heartbroken cry. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's an accusation hidden behind a question. Where are you, God? Why aren't you doing anything? Not only does God seem distant, David, David's wondering if he's intentionally avoiding the situation. How many times have you prayed and sensed that God was absent? How many times have you wondered if anyone was listening? It's not uncommon. Sometimes we enjoy incredible intimacy with God in prayer. At other times, it feels like we're talking to ourselves, our petitions bouncing off the ceiling and falling at our feet unheeded. Well, Psalms like this one remind us that it is not what we feel toward God or even what we experience with God that matters most. What matters is the objective reality of his eternal reign. Now, David will eventually affirm this trust at the end of the psalm, but it is implicit at the very beginning when he calls out to God, even though he's nowhere to be found. Beginning at verse 2, David explains why he's looking for God. The world is coming apart around him. He writes this, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they've devised. For the wicked boasts of the de desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This is an incredible description. Not only does David report the facts, he delves into the motives and the mindset of the wicked. And as this long description unfolds over seven more verses, we learn that the wicked lie, manipulate, and deceive. They oppress others. They target the vulnerable, and they wait patiently to tear them apart. Their evil isn't impulsive. It's premeditated, and they are convinced that they are untouchable. In verse 4, the wicked boldly proclaim, there is no God. 
But in verse 11, we hear something a little bit different. The wicked man says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Their atheism, as it turns out, it's more practical than it is theoretical. God may exist, but as far as the wicked are concerned, he's never going to get involved. So it doesn't really matter who he is or where he he might be. These practical atheists are convinced that God is absent, which sounds eerily familiar because David is in the same boat. So what's the difference? The wicked say God has forgotten. David cries out, why do you hide yourself? Both recognize that God is not involved in the present actions of the wicked. But while the wicked revel in this fact, David refuses to accept it. He begs God to get involved and to establish justice. The logic of the wicked is, if that, is, that, is that God, if he exists, doesn't really care. The logic of the godly king is that God does care and that he will act. And so David prays, beginning in verse 12, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. David returns to the bold language with which he began his lament. He doesn't hedge his bets saying, if it be your will, please stop these bad people. He knows God's will. He knows that God is just. He knows that God hates evil. He, he also knows that God sees exactly what's going on. He hears the cries of the oppressed. He feels the weight of their sorrow. And so David begs God to act in accordance with his character. He begs him to remember the cries of the afflicted. He reminds God that the helpless are calling on him and only he can save them. And he asks God to break the arm of the wicked, to take away their power and to hold them accountable. He doesn't just want relief. He wants a reckoning because he hates injustice. Now, David is asking for justice with a capital J, ultimate justice, which includes not just condemnation of the wicked, but protection and blessing for the weak. And so he ends this psalm with an affirmation of ultimate justice rooted in God's eternal reign. So verse 16 The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So God has been distant throughout this psalm. Distant both to David and to the wicked. But as David affirms, God hears the cry of the afflicted. He leans in toward them to listen. He strengthens, strengthens the hearts of the weak, and he will ultimately establish justice forever.
While some choose to spit in the face of the wicked, David prays. And the effect is far more dreadful for them in the long run. And once again, as with each of these Psalms of Lament we've been looking at, time is compressed. There's no guarantee that God will intervene immediately. There's no naive assurance that the innocent will never be hurt. There's only the ultimate promise that the God of justice will establish himself forever. And that when he does, the wicked will be judged and their power destroyed. And the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed will be blessed. In some ways, this is a simple prayer. It is direct, it is passionate, it's powerful. But there's a a great deal going on beneath the, the surface. And there are two lessons in particular that I want for us to learn this morning. The first lesson for us is this. The godly have eyes to see injustice in the world around them. The godly have eyes to see injustice in the world around them. So the most striking feature of this psalm is it's also the easiest to overlook. It is this. It's the king or someone standing in his place who writes this prayer. It's the king who notices the oppression of the poor, who worries for the safety of the orphan, who looks out for the weak. It's the man with the most power who is most concerned for those who have the least. So typically, the wealthy and the powerful are, con- are cocooned by their status. They don't come into contact with injustice or oppression. They read about suffering in faraway places. They see the poor through tented windows. They argue fervently about public policy, but they don't actually see or hear or feel the frantic terror that can come with being powerless. David, by contrast, is out and about. He's watching. He's noticing. He's taking time to write about it and to pray about it. He's disturbed. He's even enraged. This is incredibly important. In the kingdom of God, it is the burden of the most powerful to seek out the least powerful, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the abused, and then to cry out for justice on their behalf. Now, we happen to live in a society where it is strangely and maddeningly difficult to do this. So, ours is a culture that glorifies victimization, where people seem to be clamoring to be classed as victims of one kind of injustice or another in order to gain moral superiority and political power. The notion of justice has been so confused in our contemporary culture that we have no shared idea of what it means. But there are still unwanted children. There are women being trafficked just down the road. There are the truly impoverished, the physically weak, the vulnerable. There, have been those, there are those who have been pushed out to the margins who have no one to speak for them and no one who even notices them. 
Justice has been hijacked and it's been manipulated in our day and age as a political concept. We, the church, must recover it as a theological concept first and foremost, one that derives from the justice and the righteousness of God Himself. And so like David, we must watch, we must listen, and we must act. Just because it's hard or confusing or politically complicated doesn't give us a way out. Cynicism toward our modern culture, it is certainly understandable. But when cynicism becomes an excuse for a lack of concern or a justification for inaction, it becomes a mask that hides a hardened heart. The first thing we learn from this psalm is that the godly must have eyes to see injustice. The second is that in the face of injustice, prayer is our primary resource because God is the ultimate solution. So when you read this psalm, one of the things you have to ask yourself is, what in the world is the king of Israel doing writing poetry in his palace and praying to a God who will not answer him while the wicked run the streets? I mean, what's he doing? If anyone has the power to stop these criminal gangs or to step in and apply the force of military might to stop their abuse, it is the king, right? Well, yes and no. David had plenty of power and he was never shy to use it. And I actually imagine that David's familiarity with the suffering around him is direct evidence of the fact that he has already involved himself in trying to put it to a stop. There's no way he knows all this without being deeply involved in trying to bring it to an end. But the more he acts, the more he sees the persistence of the wicked. Clean up one street corner and the action just moves a block away. I saw a picture of our chief of police this week that I think captures the reality that David was living in. It was the bags under her eyes that said it all. Estella Patterson, our chief of police, is a strong, brave, talented woman, and she leads a force of 900 officers entrusted with upholding justice, protecting the weak, and maintaining peace. She has all the requisite earthly power that she needs, but she can't succeed in her job the way that she wants. And that's because justice, it isn't just a matter of the right application of force by the good over the evil. Justice is a matter of the human heart, every human heart. And the battle for justice, it doesn't just take place on the streets, it's a spiritual battle that only God can win. So what David knew, and what I think Chief Patterson knows, is that if we are ever going to find justice, it will be God who establishes it. We can do a lot with the power that we have, but there's only so much that we can do. And that's why David was praying while the wicked were out on the streets. He knew that there was a limit to his power, and that only God could save his people, and so he prayed. In this context, I want you to notice something that David doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, if God isn't going to do something about this, then I am. 
You see, when a godly man begins to think this way, he adopts the logic of the wicked, that God is uncaring or perhaps unable to intervene. And when a man adopts the logic of the wicked, he eventually acts like them. It's the first step leading good people to doing bad things in the name of a higher good. So how many times have we seen political movements begin with the best of intentions, then stoop to immoral means of gaining power in the name of the greater good, only to become more evil than their adversaries once they're in power? How many times throughout history have we seen the church in an effort uh, to purge evil or heresy from her midst go on a killing spree? When a good man goes from feeling that God is absent to believing that God will never act and that he must do it himself, he sets off on the path of wickedness. David's prayer, it keeps him from walking down this path. And this raises an obvious question. So does this mean that we shouldn't stand up for the weak or the vulnerable? Does this mean that if a child is being beaten on the street, we should do nothing except pray about it? Well, of course not. The biblical witness is clear. We are to stand up for the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable. We are called to stand between the wicked man and the innocent child. And we do this knowing that justice is ultimately God's to establish. These are hard things to get our heads around. There's tension in the midst of these truths. But I find Micah's instructions to Israel helpful in putting these things in perspective. He writes, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In the absence of God, the pursuit of justice, it all too often devolves into a thirst for vengeance. Kindness is replaced by cruelty, and humility just evaporates in the face of arrogance. But because we walk with God and we know His presence and we trust His plan, we seek justice with kindness and humility. Yes, we are to act, and when we do, Prayer is our primary resource because God is the ultimate solution. Our world is a mess. And frankly, it doesn't seem to get any better as one generation gives way to the next. It is easy to arrive at the same place as David when he penned the opening lines to this psalm. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And yet we know that he doesn't stand far away. He comes close, closer than I think David ever realized that he would. For some 900 years after he penned this prayer of lament, God stepped into the world as one of us. Now, Jesus didn't rid the world of wickedness, a fact that we know all too well, but he did establish justice, and he did it by laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin and then rising from the grave when he took all the power away from evil. And then he promised to return one day to destroy it completely. So we live in a world where it's still right to lament like David and to hope with David in the king who reigns forever, who sees us in our distress, who hears our prayer, 
and who has given his life for ours so that we might live with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we see the world around us as you see it. May we have eyes to see injustice and not to hide ourselves from it. May we have the courage to act, to step in, to stand on the side of the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed. And as we do, may we remember that you are the ultimate enactor of justice, that we have work to do, but the ultimate work is yours, and that you have already accomplished it through your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.